0: Thanks very much, Chris. So as Chris just said, I'm on the programme as offering a carer's perspective and describes me a bit of a wolf in sheep's clothing or a sheep in wolf's clothing. I can't remember which way around it was, but uh, that's uh, describing myself as a carer. That's uh, entirely the image I want to present to you is that I feel sort of somewhat more informed than a lot of people who are caring, in this case for, for, for elderly parents. <coughs> So I stand in front of you as someone with a foot in each camp of being both a professional or formal carer as well as an informal carer in that my background is nursing and also by a variety of routes, more recently that of facilitator and consultant in leadership development and as Chris said for seven years of that time as a leadership development consultant I was here at the King's Fund. I'm also an informal carer for my elderly parents. And in saying that, I'm not sure I can split off the knowledge of being a formal carer from that of finding myself in the informal caring role. And I suppose that in essence, I embody both things. And the byproduct of this is that I'm both highly sceptical and also hugely anxious about the sorts of professional care that my parents receive. And I think this probably makes me somewhat challenging if not a little confrontational at times, as my parents um, interface with health services. So in kicking off this conference, what I want to do is use this embodiment of being both a formal and informal carer and describe an episode of care my mother received recently and use this as case material to explore the question of what good care looks like from a highly anxious and sceptical carer's perspective. And I feel sure that the story I'm about to share with you will contain no surprises, it won't necessarily shock you, and may chime for many of you with your own experiences of caring. What I hope to do is offer my reflections on why poor care may happen and what good care looks like. So for context, my mother is 86, she's the main carer for my father, who's 90, when I told her what I was discussing with you today, she said, do you really have to give my age? And I said, yes, I think I probably would, Just part of the context. Um, and my father has heart failure and vascular dementia. He can't walk, wash or dress unaided. He's blind and deaf. And mum manages pretty well on a day-by-day basis, but their situation is neither stable nor predictable. And mum is increasingly frail and care for dad can be somewhat haphazard. For the past 18 months, they've been living independently in a retirement village and care and help is on hand, which is a huge relief for me. A carer comes in each morning to wash and dress Dad, as Mum can no longer do this, and I spend two days of every week with them, doing the sort of sweeper role, I suppose, groceries, making sure everything's running smoothly, ticking over until I can get back the following week. And when I'm there, I spend a lot of time running either Mum or Dad or both up and down to the local GP and hospital, as is usual, I think, towards the end of life, and the older we get, it seems that we're drawn more and more into the health services. And they have the usual battery of tests, checkups, minor surgery, and so on. And so I've had many hours sitting in waiting areas observing care processes and approaches and biting my my, my fist. And uh, um, I have many anecdotes about poor and, frankly, idiotic systems of hospital care, the latest being taking my father up for a pre-cataract assessment, and he was shown into a room and asked to watch a DVD on a very small television screen about the processes of the surgery he's about to receive. I had explained that he was registered blind at that stage, although he did have some sight, but the nurse insisted that we watched the DVD anyway. Dad had a jolly good snooze during that time. (laughs) But the one I want to share with you involves a comparison of care at two different centres that happened immediately one after the other. And this throws up significant contrast and approaches to care for the same condition but in different places. And this is a tale of two healthcare systems 65 miles apart in England, and let's call them Area A and Area B. And these are the essential details... In February last year, two weeks prior to their move from area A to area B to the retirement village where they now are, Mum was diagnosed with a large renal cell carcinoma tumour and this followed a large bleed into her bladder. And it was a Friday evening and emergency admission was arranged to the local hospital, Hospital A. And this transition from primary care to hospital care was handled superbly well by the local GP. He telephoned ahead, he had a letter written which he could hand in. He arranged for us to go straight through a into the emergency medical admission ward. And the care in that ward was good. And the diagnosis of a large renal tumour was made the following day, following an ultrasound scan. This was on a Saturday. And the news was broken to me by the GP on the Saturday evening. And again, promptly and expertly communicated. A mum was transferred late in the afternoon to a large noisy, chaotic general ward to await further decisions and discussions. No notes had followed Mum. Nobody knew anything about her case or her care. She was in this ward until I decided to remove her 24 hours later. At this point, no one asked what her home circumstances were and the fact that Dad was totally dependent on her. My reasons for removing her and uh, for, for taking her out of the ward were that during the evening whilst I was there... And overnight, Mum, who is normally quite well-oriented, she's, yes, getting mentally frail, but quite well-oriented, became very confused and disoriented. Few nurses were on duty. The acuity of patients was such that no one around, there was no one around to provide care or supervision of Mum. I asked to see a doctor, none were available. Eventually, I had to take Dad home, but a phone call to the ward later in the evening told me Mum was increasingly agitated, hallucinating, had pulled out her drip, and was trying to climb over cotsides. Cotsides, I said. There'd been no cotside protocol, and yet they were um, put up. Um, In short, her care on that ward was disjointed, patchy, impersonal, unhelpfully hierarchical, and, frankly, unsafe. Little continuity of care, and there was no communication of information between wards and departments internally. Early the next morning, after a sleepless night, because I was quite sure she was going to die during the night from sheer neglect... Um, I arrived at the ward at 7am on the Sunday morning and told the staff I was taking her home. The response from the staff nurse was, you've got no right to walk in here and just remove one of my patients. So I said, yes, I understand that, and I'm now taking my mother home. I knew all those feedback sessions and training would come in really useful at some stage. (coughs) I told the staff I was taking her home, and that got the doctor's attention. Three suddenly appeared at once, including the consultant, which I thought was impressive at 7 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Um, I took mum out of hospital, and this was in fact with the full support of the GP who I'd discussed this with. The specialist registrar who tried to convince me to leave mum in the ward, mum at this point was raving, said, oh well, you know, we've got her booked in for a CT scan in five days' time, it would be much easier if you just left her here in the ward for five days until she has the CT scan. Again, no asking about what the home situation was, you know, the use of a massively expensive acute hospital bed to care for someone who is quite clearly not coping with the hospital environment. Ah, so a week after this, we moved house. Well, mum and dad moved house. My husband and I helped did the move. And immediately, following personal contact from the GP to um, a surgeon in the new area, mum was in the system, a CT scan had been done, the surgeon had been seen, and elective surgery was planned. In the meantime, we met with a liaison oncology, onco-urology nurse who kept in touch with us by phone. A few days after seeing the surgeon, Mum had another bleed, and following a discussion with the liaison nurses, she was admitted to the urology ward. This admission was arranged by liaison onco-urology, the onco-urology nurse, who had checked Mum's blood tests, alerted the surgeon about Mum's growing anaemia, arranged a bed, telephoned to liaise with me about bringing Mum in arranged staff to meet us at the door of the ward the following morning. In fact, it was the surgeon himself who met us. Extraordinary. It was wonderful. And what a difference the experience in Hospital B was. Care was devolved, specialised, consistent, informed, deeply personalised, humane, compassionate, and risk was balanced with autonomy. And three days after having her kidney removed and following a rapid recovery regime, mum came home and has made an astonishing recovery. So what, how do I make sense of all of this, exactly the same condition as just such difference in care? And it's simplistic to argue that individuals were intentionally kind, unkind or cavalier in hospital B, an expert and fabulous in sorry, in hospital A, an expert and fabulous in B by default. The individual clinicians and staff in both sites were well-meaning. They came to work each day to do a good job. Rather, it was the overall approaches to care and the systems of management the individual clinicians found themselves in that created the fundamentally different experience. And this bemused me, and I've pondered on it a long time. Both hospitals in our NHS have been financed in the same way. They arise from the same political, social and cultural aspirations. They're staffed by people who are trained to a national standard and share codes of professional conduct and the differences observed were not about malpractice or disregarding clinical guidelines or being purposefully inhumane. From observation, the answer is something about that Hospital B paid detailed attention to shared decision-making with patients and carers so that we felt empowered with the knowledge about treatment options at every stage. The GP in their old area and Hospital B in the new area paid attention to the specialised role of liaison, Of navigation, system navigation, and continuity of information and coordination of care. And in the hospital, liaison nurses retained overall coordination of the care and acted as a point of access for information. The GP in the old area and in hospital B, the system, from my observer's perspective, prioritised the valuing of staff and their contribution. More investment had been made in the nurses, this was clear. In their development, in their views and their opinions, hierarchies had been flattened and excellent team working across the disciplines was apparent. There was a palpable sense of pride in the work that people were doing. In comparison, the way staff treated each other at the first hospital and their inability to provide responsive, flexible flexible care boiled down, I think, to this, to a basic lack of value of and trust in the staff. Consequently, nurses were unsupported, they were hard-pressed, they were frantic. Blame and resentment dribbled down the hierarchical layers. Care was chaotic. Doctors complained audibly about an overall lack of supervision. They didn't know how to get information about their patients or sometimes even where their patients were. So stepping back into my sort of formal role... I spent a lot of time thinking about what does this mean for my practice? What does this mean in terms of the interventions I provide as a leadership and organisational development consultant? And I'm more and more now moving my focus to the team as the unit of intervention and team coaching as the skills that are absolutely necessary within leadership development. That we can work with the individual until we're blue in the face, but actually it's the team that provides the good care And I say this because I discovered afterwards that the first hospital my mother was in, that the ward she had been moved to, the chaotic, loud, noisy ward with no systems of care, had in fact just been reopened. It had been closed three months earlier and it had been reopened because they were running out of beds and the staff were all drafted in from other areas. They didn't know each other, they hadn't got a system, they hadn't been able to think it through, there was no team and the result was frankly disastrous. So, I want to see leaders at all levels in our health service imbued with the skills of team development and team coaching, and I think that would be a start. Thank you. you.